Scripture text for today is in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. You can go ahead and find that, and we're going to uh, read that together. Um, So you can go ahead and stand, and we're going to read this text together and stand in kind of in honor of the Word. Um, Not kind of, but actually in honor of the Word. Um, And we're going to read Matthew 17, 1 through 13. Let's read together. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and I pray, God, for a special measure of help this morning as we look at just an amazing text of Scripture where you have transfigured yourself before your disciples. And Lord, uh, as we look at this, I pray that you would come now in power and you would illuminate our hearts. Illuminate our hearts to have deep affections for Jesus, to have deep desires to behold the glory of God the way the disciples did. And Lord, More than that, deep desire based on the glory of God that we behold to become like you. That we would want to pursue Christ's likeness more and more often. We need this desperately in our lives. And Lord, I I am right now desperate for your presence. There's no way that I can accurately teach such a complicated narrative without you coming and helping me say the words that you desire as well as letting my heart receive and everyone's here heart receive what it is that you have written in your word. So please come, God, please come. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> well, um, I didn't say this first service, but I thought this would be really helpful. Um, and anytime you get to talk about the show Lost, it's always good. If you've ever seen the show Lost, um, if you haven't, you're going to be lost. But if you have, then in the very first show, like they, they, the, pl- the playing uh, has this big, you know, explosion, and they they land on an island, and then when they get there, they have no idea what's going on, and then what happens is, uh, right in that very end of that first show, they're kind of standing there, and it's going dark, and all of a sudden, trees start falling, and everything, and they're all standing there, and like, whoa, where are we? This is crazy. I don't understand at all. That that feeling that they have at that moment is the feeling that you're going to have about 10 minutes in, once I first start, you're going to be like, what in the world are we doing? I'm so lost right now. I don't understand. And that feeling, I, I just want you to say, 
don't let that discourage you from staying with me because I promise we're going somewhere and I promise that it's going to hopefully, um, by the power of the Spirit, make some sense at the very end. So that's really what I'm praying for. We're not, like, I'm praying that we're going to be able to really see what's going on. So stick with me. I promise we're going to have something that we're going to and it's going to, I'm, I'm, I'm praying that be very profitable for us and edifying today. Um, <clears throat> Because we're looking at the transfiguration. We're looking at where Jesus, um, in some ways, transforms or transfigures himself. The Greek word metamorpho, metamorphosizes himself and just displays with a big, big bright light his glory. So, so bright that it's like the sun. And that's the story. And he shows his disciples. And my goal is to not only just tell you about that, but let there be an application of sorts in your life where you can, based on that, that Jesus just shown like the sun to his disciples, that you're going to take that and you're going to be able to apply that to your daily life. So big task, um, I think. So let's, let's go ahead and get right to it. As we've been going through the book of Matthew now for forever, um, we started in chapter kind of 14, middle of 14, and we're going through this next kind of section, um, and we're up here to 17. So from 14 to 17, the big idea of those few chapters has been identity revealed, where Jesus has been revealing his identity to us. And some of the ways he's been doing it is healer, when he heals people, provider, when he feeds 4,000 and 5,000, or 5,000 and 4,000, water walker, you know, just he's God. Um, 16, 16, we see Peter's declaration where he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, where this is an amazing identity being revealed of exactly who he is. We've also seen right after that in 21 and following in chapter 16, where Jesus reveals himself as the suffering servant. And we know in 16, 21 is that narrative kind of turning point where it becomes very serious, where in 16, 21, um, Jesus is explaining to his disciples, now's the time, after this, this three years of ministry, now's the time where I'm going to Jerusalem and I have to go die. And Jerusalem now isn't just a city, now it's a destiny for Jesus where he goes and dies for, the, for his people. He saves them from his sins. So every time we see the word Jerusalem now in Matthew, we know that he's talking about an actual destiny for Christ to be the Savior of the world. And so he's revealing himself as the suffering servant. And here, this is kind of the almost one of the pinnacles of all identity revealed. I mean, Jesus is revealing himself as the glorious beloved son. He is literally, to three of his disciples, revealing in some part a massive measure of his glory. And they're going to get to see it. And so um, that's where we are right here. And I think that in order for us to be able to kind of understand, we want to start up at 1628 and, and use that to go in. I didn't really explain 1628 too much last week. And Jack came up to me afterwards and said, you've got to explain 1628. So he pulled the elder card already, like in a month. He's already pulling elder cards on me. And he says, you've got, uh, you got to explain 1628 to him. And I was like, I was. It just is hard to do that. So last week, if you remember, um, 21 through 23, Jesus says, I'm going to go die. He, he starts really explaining to his disciples that I have to go die now. And he says, based on that, Based on the fact that I have to die, I'm not willing that you disciples to do anything that I'm not willing to do. In verse 24 of chapter 16 to 28, he says, now you have to die. And he doesn't mean physically, but he means spiritually. You have to be willing to let go of your desires, your will, your ways, and be willing to die. And he literally says, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. So he's, he tells him that. And then we go right down to verse 28 where he says, and remember, the Bible wasn't written with chapter and verse divisions. Matthew didn't go, and 28, 
Truly I say to you, he didn't do that. So it's just, just, he's just writing a letter. In 28 it says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here. So this is Jesus talking to his disciples. And in that immediate context, we're thinking some of the people that are standing here who will not taste death, who will not die until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So what does that mean? And then Matthew immediately goes into the transfiguration. So a lot of commentators, and there's about um, seven different guesses. I mean, I'm not kidding. Seven, seven, ah, all right. Seven different guesses. Sometimes I just struggle with words. Just let's all deal with that. So seven different guesses of, of, of translations. I'm trying to understand what's going on in verse 28. Two of them I think are really good out of the seven. The first one is the immediate context in Matthew is as soon as he writes that, Matthew writes this, he goes right into the story of the transfiguration. So that makes sense that some of those who are standing there, where Jesus is going to pull Peter, James, and John, some of those three out of those 12, and say that they will not taste death, they will not die until they see the sound of man coming in his kingdom until literally um, they see in some measures uh, Jesus's glory and that he's the king of this kingdom. That's, that's one interpretation. I think that's pretty good. Um, one, another one, which I think is also right, is uh, this is actually talking about post-resurrection. There are some people that are my disciples that will not die until after, after Jesus' resurrection, before the ascension, before he goes to heaven. There's a period of time where he's on earth walking around. And I, the, I think the better one is that some of those people that saw him die, that are still alive, they won't die. They're going to get to be a part of seeing him walk around and uh, really kind of instituting his kingdom, instituting the church, instituting everything. And then they're going to go, they won't taste death. And so that's kind of the big picture idea, this um, post-resurrection era where all the evidences of Jesus' coming kingdom are taking place there. Really, in, if you look in the first few chapters of the book of Acts um, as the, the church begins. So that's, that's what Major 28 is. And this, this is a, a big turning point in Jesus' self-disclosure as identity revealed where he just becomes uh, the glorious beloved son. I can already see that, that lost principle that I said at the very beginning is setting in. Some of you are like, what in the world is he? So I'm telling you, we're going somewhere. I'm so excited about where we're going. Like, I'm, I can't wait to get the application. Now, here's the thing. Um, I'm going to hold off to the best of my ability to not give you any application to the very end because this narrative is pretty, pretty crazy anyway. So at the very end, I have three points of, of application that I want you to see. But before we get into it, um, we're going to go through those application points. We're going to go through chapter 17. But before we do that, I want you to think with me about this. If any of you have children, um, you're going to share this experience, hopefully. Um, I've got four children. I know that seems impossible. How can a 20-year-old have four children? I'm actually much older than 20. Um, so I'm, I'm about to have my, I think it's uh, 20th high school reunion this summer. And so stop counting. I know you're thinking in your head, whoa, he's like, yes, I am. So anyway, I've got four children. And um, what happens is, especially my son, I've got two daughters and a youngest, and my third is my son. And every time I come home, he kind of surveys me and sits, has an idea of what's going on. And then whatever's going on, he wants to do exactly what I'm doing. So if I have on, you know, a button-up shirt uh, like this and these snap buttons, and I, and I go, hey, Aiden, and I go like this. And then he runs up and puts a shirt on. He goes, hey, Dad, and he pulls the shirt up. If he sees me with my pen behind my ear just after the service, he, he's sticking a pen behind his ear, and he goes, hey, Dad. And so because I put, usually keep a pen behind my ear. So like whatever he sees, um, and this is the scary part of being a parent, whatever children see their, their parents, saying and doing, children, they look at that, they behold that, they watch what's going on, and then they become that. So all the good things, 
that's good. All the bad things, it's terrible whenever you see how sinful you are and your kids, you know, act that same way back to you. And you're like, oh man, I've got to get better at that. So like you think about, but that's kind of the principle that we're going here. And I, whatever I'm wearing around the house, Aiden will run upstairs and put something on that and come downstairs. But my whole point is our children are becoming like us more and more each day because they're beholding us more and more each day. So that's the principle I want you to see, which is this. We become like what we behold. We become like what we behold. Whatever it is that has captivated your heart, you become like it more and more. So hopefully, if you're a believer, you can just say, well, clearly that should be Jesus. The more and more I behold Jesus, the more and more I become like Jesus. And this isn't some kind of self-help program where I just want to become more perfect in order to just be perfect. It's in order to um, live live out our appreciation for what he's done for us at the gospel, the fact that he has put his own life forward and taken our place on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, and given us new life out of response, out of worship for that. I want to live a life that reflects his glory, that displays his glory, that tells people about his glory, and I want to become more and more like him, less and less sinful. So we become like what we behold. Let me, let me put a Bible verse under that. There's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. I think it's on the screen behind me. I don't really do this very often, but I put this one up there. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, and we all with unveiled face, that's a reference to Moses. We're going to talk about that a little bit, but we all with unveiled face, watch this, beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image. This word transformed is that same word what we're going to see in Matthew 17, transfigured. It's the Greek word metamorpho, which is where we get our word metamorphosize or whatever it's called. Um, you can just, you know the word. Um, so he says, we all beholding the glory of God. So there's, it's kind of predicated on if we're beholding the glory of God, what happens to us? Then we're being transformed or transfigured or metamorphing into whatever that word is, um, his uh, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this, uh, this, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The only way that you become more like Jesus is because he gives you the gift of being able to do that. But the more you behold, the more you become like him. Okay? That's key to this because here's the thing. When we're looking at this transfiguration, there's four things that I want you to behold here. There's four pictures, views, whatever you want to call it, that we, I want you to behold Jesus today. Now, here's the thing. Um, when we talk about, uh, when I go through sermons, I want them to, to be something that you're going to grasp and understand. But all today I'm going to say is, behold this particular thing about Jesus. So I don't want you to think about it this way. Okay? It's kind of, I don't want you to think it like fireworks where you're just like, all right, I'm going to behold that. There it is. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that was a good one. Yep. All right, it's all over. All right, that's it. So I'm going to go home and, you know, eat some cake. I, I don't want you to behold this way. The way we're talking about behold is exactly what we're talking about in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We want to behold so that we'll become. So as I talk about these four things, behold, have in the back of your mind, the reason why we want to behold this particular thing about Jesus is because I want to become like this particular thing, or I at least want to find myself absolutely amazed about that particular thing about Jesus so that I will find myself becoming more and more like him. So those, that's what we're going to do here. We're going to behold Jesus today, behold him. And we're going to see four of those here in this text. 
And then at the very end, we're going to get to some application where you can see how the transfiguration of Jesus literally can have some straight applications to you in your life. So first first verse, verse 1. After this, remember... Remember the, the narrative, 1621, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. So that's one of the very first times where he's telling his disciples, I've come to die. I've come to, to die for the world and their sins. And so he, 1621, we've got to remember that's the context. And it says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and his brother. So he's wasting no time whatsoever. As soon as it's talking about Jerusalem, setting its face towards Jerusalem, um, setting his face towards obedience of, of the will of the Father to go to Jerusalem and die. He's making haste. He's going as fast as he can. Okay, since I'm going to Jerusalem, I want these three inner disciples to see my glory because this, the rest of this road is going to be tough, and I want them to come. James and, and Peter and John, you guys come with me, and they take six days feels like a long time for us, but, you know, for them, they're walking. Give them a break. They're going, they're going a pretty far away. And so they're walking, and it says, And Jesus, after six days, took with him Peter, James, and John, and his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Throughout the scriptures, all kinds of important things happen on mountains, and this is absolutely no exception. We're going to see that here, and, um, but just remember, mountains are, God loves mountains. Um, he always does all kinds of things on, on mountains. And so he takes his three closest disciples with him up on the mountain. We don't know which mountain it is. There's speculation whether it's Hermon or Tabor or Myron. I know y'all all wanted to know that, but I just wanted to make you know that I read commentaries. Um, and so he takes them up on this high mountain. That was ridiculous. And verse 2, he was transfigured before them. He was transfigured. This is the, as I said, that same word transformed, metamorpho. He transformed himself. He transfigured before them. So what does transfigured mean? Let's stop and just take a look at that word transfigured and understand what it means. Transfigured is an outward, visible transformation and sign um, of Jesus's inmost nature. Remember, he's God and man, and so he is, in some senses, manifesting himself or transforming himself and so that they are seeing the fullness of his glory visibly. This is not something that's common. Jesus didn't walk around like this or else everybody would have just been blind the whole time. And he, of course, didn't want that because that's a lot of healings to have to follow up with. So, um, so he's, he's been walking around in some senses, like Philippians 2, 6 and 7 says, um, he emptied himself of some things and, and hides, in, in some senses, his deity. And so he's walking around, um, and so he transfigures himself. And so it actually tells us what that, what that looked like physically. And it says, And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So his face was just as bright as the sun can be, and his clothes became as white as they can. Mark and Luke both record this exact same story, and they say it this way. Mark says that he became intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Talking about his clothes. So if you're really into Clorox, like you can't get it any more whiter than this. It was insanely white. And then Luke says he was dazzling white. He was dazzling white. Now, so he transfigures himself before them. Now here's what's interesting. John Calvin, as he's commenting on this, um, says some things about this that I think are absolutely amazing to help us understand something. Calvin says that he made his body to be somewhat like, but not fully like, his heavenly body. He gave them a taste of his boundless glory, but only so much as they could handle. So he didn't fully display to them his glory, 
but he displayed to them as so much as they could understand and take in at that particular moment. So here's point number one for us. As we're looking into this narrative, as we're looking and we know that the word has power and we're studying this, the first thing I want you to behold in Jesus today is I want you to behold with me the boundless glory of Jesus. And that word less on the end of bound is is so key. He is never going to run out of glory. Never going to run out of it. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, um, speaks of our understanding of of God in in, in this kind of way. Um, A question's kind of thought and bounced around is, once we've kind of seen the glory, like once we got it and we're in heaven and we've, we've seen it all, won't there become a time when we're just like, well, okay, I saw it all. Like, that's it. Now I'm getting kind of bored of the glory, you know? And Edward says that's absolutely not going to happen. He talks about like if you're walking up an ever-increasing mountain and you're walking up and you're seeing these clouds and you're thinking, surely that, that's all there is to know of God. And once I get that, then I'm going to know everything. And he, he says when you walk through that cloud and once you get to it, you see even another level. And you're like, okay, well, I understand. But wow, there's even more to know of God. And so that's our understanding of heaven, that whenever you get there... He, his mercies are new every day. Every morning when you wake up, he gives you new mercies, more mercies, more glory, more ways to love him, more understanding of him. And then you're like, wow, this is amazing. And then the next day, even more because he's God and he has, he's infinite, not finite. He never ends. There's never a moment where he runs out of resources to lavish on you even more glory, more amazement, more um, mercies. And so here we say, behold the boundless glory of Jesus. For us, that means if the reason why God does that is for our ever increasing joy in him. He, he gives us more and more glory. And the more we take in his glory, the more and more joy we have in him. So here, as we see point number one, behold the boundless glory of Jesus. I'm wanting us to stare at that and say, that's amazing. His glory will never end. Therefore, my joy in him will never end. It'll never cease. It'll never stop. It'll never come to a, well, I guess that's the end. That's the first thing I want us to see here is behold the boundless glory of Jesus. Now, there's so much application that we can do. I'm going to wait till the end to give us some of these things because you're thinking, wow, this is pretty like, high stuff like this is kind of hard to understand I, and believe me i believe I, I i agree with you so let's just let's just keep walking through it and i want you to stick with me here now um calvin also notes one particular thing here um he takes with him peter james and john and we know that that's his inner three disciples um that's the that's you know out of the 12 that's the three that are the most close to christ and whenever he takes them um calvin notes this this is pretty interesting the reason why he takes those particular disciples with him, so that uh, Peter, James, and John, so that when his time for death comes, they're going to remember this and they're going to think to the, themselves. And, and, and when the time of death comes, Jesus does nothing to stop it. Remember, he just gave himself over willingly. Peter, James, and John are going to be able to understand what's going on because they're everybody's going to say, "We want this to stop. We want this to stop." And Peter, you know, he chops off the guy's arm and he, uh, ear, and Jesus puts it on. It's just kind of a reminder of. If I wanted to stop this, I could, Peter. Remember the transfiguration? Remember my power? So here's what's going on. is He's doing this to these people so that whenever he doesn't stop his death, Jesus is showing them that he's not being dragged unwillingly to death, but that he came forward. Jesus is coming forward of his own accord, willingly to carry out the Father's will and die on the cross. This is his absolute plan. 
And so the disciples are going there. They're thinking to themselves, surely if Jesus can transfigure himself in front of us and show us all the glory of God, if he wanted to, then he could get away from soldiers. He could just get away from them. So he's subjecting himself to death willingly. He's wishing to do it so that he can be crucified and die for the sins of us. And the disciples are able to know that that's the case because they've seen the transfiguration. I thought that was a pretty amazing insight. That's just amazing love to know that Jesus could have stopped it at any time, but he willingly went to the cross. Um, As a matter of fact, I think it's Hebrews 12 that says, for the joy set before him. It was joy to go save save, um, us. So we go on here and it says, and he transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and the clothes became white as light. So the first thing we saw is we beheld the boundless glory of Jesus, which means our ever increasing joy in him. Now there's a second thing I want you to see. Um, and that is, um, we're going to behold the exclusivity of Jesus, the exclusivity. And that just means exclusiveness. Like no one else besides Jesus has this glory, deserves this glory, etc. It's going to unfold for us there in the narrative. I want you to see it um, in the story. In verse 3 it says, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. So here's the scene. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they're standing there. Jesus transfigures, and all of a sudden two other people show up. Here's Moses and Elijah. If you don't know who they are, they're people that lived a long time ago in the Old Testament. Um, And so it'd be kind of creepy that they're there. Um, And so there's a couple questions that automatically pop up in our head. The first is, um, how do they know it's Moses and Elijah? You know, it's not like Peter, James, and John were uh, following them on Twitter or friends with them on Facebook and had their profile picture memorized. Like, oh yeah, I remember them on Facebook. That's, uh, that's Moses, that's Moses. He didn't have the big beard and talk like Charleston Hessen. So we don't know exactly, like, how is it that they know? Um, and it's obviously, I mean, the only answer we can say is God gave them the supernatural ability to understand and know that that's Moses and that's Elijah. And that's just, there it is. Um, he created the world. Surely he can give them an understanding to know who it is. Um, and so that's the first thing. The second question, I think the more important question is not how do they know it's Moses and Elijah, but why is it that Moses and Elijah are there? Why them two? You know, why not, jo- well, obviously not Jonah, but why not Jacob? Why not uh, Abraham? Why Moses and Elijah? It's because these two guys are representative of something. They're representative. These two guys are considered, you know, Old Testament pillars, Old Testament um, people that are very important, and they represent two things, and that's why those two are there. Moses, if you remember, um, is the one who gave the law, and Elijah was one of the prophets. And so these two are representative. Moses is representative of the law, and Elijah is representative of the prophets. So the reason why those particular people there are because they're representing the law and the prophets. Um, and if we remember, back in Matthew five seventeen, um, Jesus said that he had, did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. So they're there as a reminder to show us that Jesus is the fulfiller of the law and the prophets, and that's why he's so deserved of this glory, and that's why he even has the ability to display to us this glory, because he is the fulfillment of these two particular things, the law and the prophets. Now, let's get to um, some understanding about Moses and Elijah a little bit, and understanding their mountaintop experiences and how familiar they are with the glory of God and mountains. And then we'll get to why it is I'm saying that this is the exclusivity of Jesus. Um, I'm telling you, I know this is tough. So let's do this. Um, I feel like I need to keep you know, saying sorry. Sorry about 
In verse 3 it says, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. So first is Moses, the giver of the law on Mount Sinai. And there's a place in Exodus 33:18. I'm not going to flip to it, but basically here's what's going on. Um, Moses is interceding for his people. And he's so caught up with a deep, desperate heart for his people and love of God. And he's just praying for his people that he finally just says, God, would you show me your glory? That's an amazing prayer. Like, that's a pretty powerful thing to be so enamored with God that you want to see him so desperately. You, you have such deep affections for him. You finally just say, God, would you physically show me your glory? I want to see the glory of God. Well, God says, I can't show you my glory. If I did, it would, it would kill you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm just going to pass by with my back, and you're going to see that, and that, that's going to be enough. So that happens, and then he also gives him the law, and so it says in Exodus uh, 34, 29, that he walks down with the, with, the, with the law. Moses, representative of the law, walks down from the mountain. Again, mountains are important. And uh, he doesn't know it, but as he's walking down from, from there, ready to give the law over, it says that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. He didn't realize it, but because he had been in the presence of God and in some ways been, had seen the glory of God in some sense, that his face was literally shining white, almost like Jesus here at the Transfiguration, and um, because he had been talking with God. So here's what's interesting here. This is how it's different than Jesus. Moses met with God and then reflected the glory of God. And then we have Elijah, and we had some mountaintop experiences in 1 Kings 18 um, on Mount Carmel where he defeats the prophets of Baal. And then right after that in 1 Kings 19, he in some ways sees the glory of God as well, another mountaintop experience. And he went out as a prophet of God and proclaimed the glory of God. He would, he would get a word from the Lord, um, get a word about the glory of God, and he would go and reflect and proclaim the glory of God. So Moses and Elijah would reflect the glory of God. But Jesus was different. He didn't reflect the glory of God. He was God. And so in this transfiguration on his mountaintop, he literally reveals the glory of God. That's different than reflection. We all reflect, but Jesus reveals the glory of God and they reflect. So now we're seeing here that there's definitely something different about Jesus compared to Moses and Elijah. This is where it gets amazing. And this is, how, uh, this is why I love it because Peter, you know, Peter's always got something to say. It, this, all this is going on, the transfiguration, and, and <clears throat> Jesus is shining as white as the sun, and Peter thinks to himself, this is a good time for me to say something. <laughs> I've got some thoughts. I want to share them here. This is a perfect time for me to talk. And so it says in verse 5, Lord, it is good that we are here. Now, I don't think that Peter's saying, God, oh, Jesus, you're so lucky that me and, and James and, and John, that we're here. I don't think he's saying that. I think he's actually saying, Lord, we're really lucky to be here. So I think he understands the situation. Um, and then he says, I know um, it's good that we're here because you guys don't look like tent makers. I look more like a tent maker, and we do, and there's three of us. And so here's what, if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. How does that sound? So what's Peter doing here when he all of a sudden just becomes Mr. Weird? And he says he's trying to be hospitable maybe, and he says, um, I want to be Mr. Tent Guy. I want to make y'all some tents. What's, what is it that Peter's trying to do here? And we're going to see in verse 5 um, that his request to make tents is absolutely shut down. And, and why is it shut down? Um, it's, I mean, it's just... It's just sad how bad it shut down. But Peter uh, does say this. 
it's good that we're here. I'm lucky to be here. And if you wish, I will make you three tents. This word tent is also tabernacle or shelter or booth. That's another word, way we can understand that word. So the three and the tents are important. The first, the tent is important because before the temple where the Lord's presence was, there was the tabernacle before the temple, and that kind of um, represented the presence of God. And so Peter understands that there is a real sense in which the presence of God is here. And so he's saying, I need to make a tent. Notice he doesn't say, let me throw out three towels. Let me throw out three blankets. Let me clear off three spaces in the ground and y'all sit in those three places. He uses the word tents because he realizes this is pretty big. This is something important. Um, The presence of God is here. And so I need to make three tents for y'all. Kind of referencing back to Leviticus 23, the Feast of Booths, where they had appreciation for, for the Lord. But The thing that got him in trouble is the three. He doesn't say, let me make one. He says, let me make three. And this is what happens. Because he wants to make one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus, makes three of them identical, he is putting Jesus on the same level as Elisha and Moses. And so as soon as he starts making this recommendation, you can see in verse 5, God doesn't even let him finish the sentence. It just says, um, in verse 5, and he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed him, and, G- and God just starts talking. So, I mean, this is obviously a bad week for Peter. Two bad recommendations in a row. First of all, he's like, Jesus, you can't die. And he, Jesus just says, Satan, get out of the way. And so that's bad enough. He gets, <laughs> he gets reprimanded by Jesus. Now he gets reprimanded by God the Father. The cloud just comes down and says, basically, Peter, just be quiet. Just, just go over there and keep your mouth shut. I got something going on here that's, that you don't need to, you know, make tents for us. And basically, Peter has a good heart. I think he has well intentions. But what he's doing is, is he's trying to say Jesus is on the same level as Elisha and, and Moses. And so this is why I want us to see the exclusivity. Behold, the exclusivity of Jesus. Jesus is not equal with these two guys. These two guys are always under. It's always Jesus only. Elevate Jesus. He's the most important. It's always been about Jesus. The glory of Jesus. He is the most important thing. Nobody else. So this is what's going on. Behold, the exclusivity of Jesus. And Peter has to deal with this as being corrected by God. And so we see that there in verse number four or five when he says, uh, let's make three tents. And he tells them, this is my beloved son. God comes in in a cloud, Old Testament style always comes in a cloud, um, Shekinah glory. And he says in the cloud, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So we've seen the first one is, behold, the boundless glory of Jesus. He reveals himself, but only in such a way that doesn't consume them. And the second way we see, behold, the exclusivity of Jesus. Now, this third one, I want you to see this. This is just, this is precious if we could just wrap our minds around this. Behold, the love of the Father for Jesus, the Son. Notice the wording. Notice the wording. It says for us in verse 5. While Peter was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. God's had enough. And he says, and the voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so he comes and he says, this is my beloved son. This is a a sign of very, very tender words. This is my beloved son, the one I deeply care for, the one I'm very proud of, the one I have 
always had a fullness, never-ending, never-ceasing, never-having-anything-between-it fullness of love for him from eternity past. There's never been a moment where Jesus' son, the Son, has not received all of my love towards him. This is my beloved. Imagine the fullness of all the love of God the Father being put on Jesus, and he's never not experienced that until the cross. He's never not. And so he's saying, this is my beloved son, the one who, the one who receives all of the fullness of my love. My beloved son. And not only that, and whom I am well pleased. Jesus has absolutely always from eternity past been completely obedient to the will of the Father. And because of that, I am well pleased with him. Now, if you remember, this particular phrase has been used before. In Matthew three seventeen, the exact phrasing at the baptism of Jesus. And so there's two markers in Jesus' life where God the Father is so in love and, and we're getting to see the love of the Father for Jesus where he literally descends down at the baptism and institutes the ministry of Jesus where he starts his ministry. And then at the very end, right here in, in Matthew 17, where he descends down and remember 1621 for us is that, that marker, that turn towards Jerusalem. And right here, God comes down right before the road to Calvary begins and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Two huge markers in, this, in the life of Jesus where God the Father descends down and even speaks. Now, this particular phrase is different as well from Matthew 3.17 because he also adds on this little thing, listen to him. Listen to him. We're going to get to that in just a second about how we can listen to God. But here I wanted just to, to stop and pause and just notice and enjoy the deep affections of the Father for the Son. Just notice that and just find ourselves caught up and captivated how much the Father loves the Son. Because as we behold that, we become like that. That's what we want. We want to find ourselves being captivated for a deep love for the Son. Now, um, we've seen... Peter's declaration in 1616, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And now we've seen God's declaration of Jesus in 17.5, where he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Two declarations of Jesus. And now we see in verse 5, um, it ends with listen to him. We would all do well to listen to the father's advice to listen to Jesus. Spurgeon says it this way, it's better to hear the Son of God than to see saints or build tabernacles. In this moment, they're seeing saints and, and Peter's wanting to build tabernacles and Spurgeon says, all that is secondary. The best thing that we can do is just listen to the Son of God. Nothing gets better than that. Listen to the Son of God. Enjoy Jesus and then listen to him. Now here's what happens. Um, in verse Five, God comes and talks, and in verse 6 it says, When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. As soon as God spoke, they were terrified. John Calvin says that the majesty of God, as soon as we perceive him, must unavoidably cast us down. So they hear from the Lord, and as soon as they hear from it, they just fall down onto the ground. And they stay there, and they can't imagine. Now here's the thing. Verse 6 to verse 7 is key. Because this posture is how most of us spend the rest of our lives thinking of God the Father. And Jesus came to take our minds away from this posture. There is a sense where we need to have this type of reverence before the Father. But there's also a sense, this fear of the Lord that 
that may be in your heart where you're so scared. And verse 6 to verse 7 is a huge transition for us to understand that this is not the only posture. We should not remain in a spirit of fear towards God. Verse 7 is key. Look at verse 7. This is what happens in verse 7. It says, But Jesus came and touched them and said, Listen, rise, have no fear. Have no, son of God, daughter of God, there is a sense in which you should have a fear of the Lord. But Jesus is coming. And look at the, the, the gentleness. He came and he touched them. And he's saying, rise, have no fear. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize the narrative too much, but I want you to realize that this is a very sweet phrase in the way this story unfolds for us who are children. He came down for this very reason that believers might no longer lay trembling in fear before the Father, but as sons and daughters may boldly now approach into the presence of God in order to enjoy it. That is amazing. I have a two-year-old, a four-year-old, but there's never a moment in whatever I'm doing when my two-year-old comes up and says, Daddy, I want to get in your lap and whatever she wants to do. I don't ever say, no way, I'm busy, out of my presence. I've got things going on. <laughs> like that would be insane, right? I want to enjoy these moments. I don't have them very often. I know when they get teenagers, they think you're gross and they don't want to get in your lap and they don't want to tell you they love you, etc. So like I want to enjoy all these moments. As soon as my two-year-old wants to sit in my lap, whatever's going on, that's important. And that, that same idea is what's going on here. That, Whenever you are a son or daughter of Jesus, you can approach the throne of grace with boldness. There is a sense where we still have an understanding that he's God and Revelation 1 where John saw Jesus and he felt like he was a dead man. There is that. But there's also, that's not the only part of it. Sometimes we live in that. We don't appreciate and understand that Jesus came. He came down to help us understand that we are now boldly able to go into the presence of God as a son and a daughter, as Ephesians says, co-heirs with Christ. That's pretty amazing. That is amazing language. So, notice this. Jesus came and he touched them. No matter what your situation in is, no matter what your sin is, no matter what your circumstance is in, Jesus doesn't stay away. He doesn't stay distant. He doesn't stay apathetic to your sin, your situation, your circumstance. If you're a child of him, he comes, and when he comes, he does something about that sin, about that circumstance, about that situation. He comes now, and he touches it in, a, in such a way so that it makes a lasting, significant impactful change in your life. And this change, which is obviously your salvation, this salvation has given you the ability now as a son or daughter to go boldly into the presence of God, not fall down at terror in front of God, but come into his presence boldly and just enjoy him. Wow. So what I want you to see here is this. Notice this, okay? This is so good. He came and he touched him. He said, rise and have no fear. And look at verse 8. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And so the fourth one isn't notice the boundless glory, behold the boundless glory. It's not behold the exclusivity of Jesus. It's not behold the love of the Father. It's just behold Jesus. That's it. Behold Jesus. And let the truth of 2 Corinthians 3.18 begin to take root in your heart. When we behold the Son, 
we become like him. We become like what we behold. No one but Jesus was there. God the Father, in the form of the bright cloud, which had overshadowed, had lifted. And all they saw was Jesus. Moses, Elijah, secondary, gone. It's always been about him. And when they gently raised up their hand, and Jesus raised up their head, all they saw was him alone. He is the only one for you to put your trust in for your salvation. And when you do that, fears begin to vanish. Wrongly placed affections begin to move away from sinful things and your affections or your love or your heart's desires start to be placed on the right, correct thing, which is Christ. Um, you become more and more focused on him. This is how Spurgeon says it. This is so good. This is so good. Oh, that we may also have the eye of our mind so fixed on the Lord as our one object that he may fill the whole vision. And we may see Jesus only. Our eyes are not divided and looking at other things. It's just, behold Jesus. This is pretty awesome. Now, those are the four things I want you to behold. We're going to unpack this little bit of narrative and we're going to get to the applications. Right after that, um, it says in verse 9, they were coming down the mountain. Luke tells us that this was more than likely the very next day. This is the very next day that this happened. And uh, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until you see the Son of Man raised from the dead. Now, this is just... Uh, the very last time that Matt, that John's going to, I'm sorry, Jesus <laughs> is going to tell them, uh, you can't tell anybody this kind of messianic secret. This is the fifth and final time he's going to tell them that. But he tells them, don't tell anybody. And the main reason is because they want to run out and tell, we just saw the transfiguration, this amazing sign, he's the Messiah, everybody's got to put their, but only them three saw. And so Jesus is basically saying, don't say it yet. There's another sign that's coming. And after that sign, then you can tell them about the transfiguration. But this other sign, this bigger sign that's coming, is going to be pretty convincing. As a matter it's going to be the most convincing sign. So this transfiguration, though it's good, it's not the sign. There's one sign coming. My resurrection from the dead, the sign of Jonah, the only sign I told the Pharisees they're going to get, is coming. That is a very convincing sign that I'm the Messiah. Let that be the thing. And then after that, then you can tell everybody about this transfiguration. But until then, don't tell them about the transfiguration. And so the disciples are thinking to themselves, wait a second. And they ask, and the disciples ask, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? They're referencing back to Malachi 4, uh, 4, 5, and 6, where there's this words that says, first Elijah's going to come, and then after that, the Messiah. And they're thinking, wait a second. Elijah's supposed to come again, and he's not yet here. And you're telling us that um, first... Elijah has to come, and then you have to come and be raised from the dead. So first of all, we've got to wait on Elijah, and then after Elijah, then we've got to wait for that to happen. That, we haven't even seen Elijah, which means we've got a long time till that's going to happen, and then that, so that seems like that's a long time to wait, Jesus. And, and you know Peter, like, he's got a big mouth. He's just got to talk. So how are we going to wait that long and wait? And so Jesus helps them see um, you don't have to wait on Elijah anymore. He's already come. It says, and he says that in verse 11. Elijah does come and he will restore all things. Um, but I tell you that Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him. Verse 13 explains that to us. And he says, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So Elijah has already come. That was John the Baptist, the forerunner that came. And whenever he came as John the Baptist, then Jesus came. And so Jesus helps them see. He's, he's up. Peter's, I know he's, he's going to talk a lot, but John the Baptist has already come, and he was Elijah. So it's, it's progressing along. These things are about to happen. And so he says, uh, Elijah will come, 
And they didn't recognize him, but he said, and they did to him whatever they pleased. In other words, they did whatever they wanted with John the Baptist, which is they killed him. And the same thing is going to happen to me. John the Baptist's message, Elijah, if you will, is no different than my message. Repent and turn to the Lord. And so that's the same thing that's going to happen to me. That's why he says it right there where he says, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Um, If John the Baptist's death wasn't prevented, then surely... The Messiah's death is, is surely to come. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen as well. They're gonna, he's going to suffer. The Messiah will suffer. <clears throat> and then he's going to, where it says, restore all things like Elijah. Jesus is going to restore all things. Literally by restoring, there was um, ages upon ages, years upon years of the wrath of God that had been built up, that had not been poured out on sin yet. And so restoration needed to be happened. So Christ stands in and he appeases all the wrath of God, absorbs all the wrath of God, and then restores all things because the wrath of God has finally been poured out as a punishment on sin. So as Romans 3 says, now God is, the, is just by um, punishing sin and he's also the justifier. He's the one that makes everything right. So it's just amazing where it says he's going to restore all things. He will restore all things and he does it specifically in Jesus. Now, that's kind of the, un, the unpacking of that. Now, what I want to do is just go into some, some applications from this transfiguration, because this is pretty lofty, and we're thinking, man, how is it that we can get some things out of this? I, I want you to see three things in here that I think are absolutely crucial. Number one is this. Um, from this, I want you to, uh, the application is, I want you to love and trust, trust the Word's power. I want you to love and trust the Bible, the Scripture, Trust its power and don't be experience-driven. This is what I mean. When I say experience-driven, think of, if you ever had any experience in youth camp, you think of Thursday night when everybody cries and everybody's like, this is the second coming. Like everybody's crying and we're all promising we're never going to sin anymore because we've had really good weeks and everything's been good. And I'm really like, experience, experience, experience. Um, If we have just an experience and we all kind of think about the transfiguration and we think, you know what? If I, this is, I think, where the word mountaintop experience comes from. We look at that transfiguration, we say, if I could have that mountaintop experience, if I could have the time where I would, I would get really serious, if I had a bright light come and just blind me for a little bit, and it say, a cloud descend, and the voice of God say, this is Jesus, <laughs> and I'm very pleased. If that happened, that's when I would finally get serious about Jesus. That's, and I'm saying, don't be experience-driven. I know you're not ever going to have that. But there are moments where you're just so experience-driven. I need to have an experience. Then I'll be walking with God. Then I'll finally have it. And Peter, who has the ultimate experience, can we just all admit that none of us are ever going to have an experience like that? You may have a great worship service on a Sunday one day, but it's not going to compare to the transfiguration, okay? And Peter, who has what seems to be the ultimate experience, tells us, he tells us, you have something more sure. You have something even better than that. You don't have to say, I will have a great understanding of God if I only had that. He actually writes about the transfiguration himself in Second Peter. I want you to read this. He references exactly Second P- uh, the transfiguration in Second Peter. Look at, at this with me. And this is just highlighting for us the application number one, which is we should love and trust the word's power more than our experience. Look at this. And I'm not trying to diminish a, a good worship service. If you have a good worship service, well, praise God for that. We, we want some of those here at Remedy as well. So um, look at 
2 Peter 1.16, it says, For we did not f- follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Watch this. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter right here is literally talking about the transfiguration that he was an eyewitness to. He's referring back to that day on this particular mountain. He said, me, James, and John, we were eyewitnesses of that. This is amazing. Watch this. And he said, for when he received honor and glory from God, the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is Father. uh, Peter leaves out the part where he was just making tents. Smartly. And it says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is exact phrasing that happened. And so he's saying, I was there that day when God the Father descended and said, um, this is my son whom I am well pleased. He goes, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And you're just thinking, okay, Peter's talking about the transfiguration. That's a pretty amazing experience. I wish I had that. Look at this. And we have something more sure. That's amazing words. <laughs> That's insane. He's saying there's something more sure than that great experience of the transfiguration, the prophetic word. And if we're wondering what the prophetic word is, if you look down in 20, it tells us. It says, first, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So what he's saying is the Scriptures themselves are more sure than this experienced thing. So here's what I want you to see, is that you can absolutely depend upon the Word. Remember that last phrase when he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, and it says, listen to him? You can ask the question, how am I going to listen to him? Right here. This is how you listen to him. How are you supposed to listen to him? We have something more sure than the transfiguration. We have the word itself. When he says, we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp. How many times does the Bible call itself a lamp? Shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes without someone's own interpretation. And then he even says right here that anybody that wrote scripture was carried by the Holy Spirit. In 21, look, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's talking about Scripture. Men, as they wrote, were literally writing the very words of God. And you have something more sure. So when he says, listen to him, you're saying, how can I listen to him? He's right here every day, ready to meet with you, ready to commune with you, ready for you to know him. It is absolutely sure. Don't Put all your love and hope and trust in experience. Instead, love and trust what the word says it has, the power that it says it has, and don't be experience-driven. Not diminishing experience, I'm saying, but this is here every day. You can meet with him, commune with him. That's the first application. The second application is this. Um, is we should see Jesus' glory as precious and preeminent. Precious and preeminent. And what that means is, remember whenever I was talking about Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, and quickly as uh, Peter's trying to put them all in the same playing field, and God comes down and says, okay, be quiet. It's just Jesus. And this, the glory of God is what's most, the glory of Jesus is what's most important. What I think that we should do is, for us, if we're in Christ, there's going to be one day where we are in heaven beholding his glory. And Peter's here wanting to make three tents and try to say, um, Let's make three, three different things, and we're going to make Moses and Elijah and, and Jesus, and that's it. And God quickly comes in and says, Peter, be quiet. I want to put the spotlight only on Christ. 
take Moses and Elijah off the table. Everything's about this is my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. The spotlight should only be on Christ. And what I want us to think about is the glory of Christ should be the most precious thing to us. Preeminent, preeminent meaning excellent, top, finest, greatest, most important. There's nothing else, not Moses or Elijah, not our 21st century distractions in Christianity where we get distracted about what our favorite Christian book is or a crazy... Uh, favorite Christian radio station or our favorite translation or testaments or whatever. Like we can get distracted with, with that's those mints. Like we can get so distracted with Christian things and, and forget about the most important thing, which is Jesus. We don't need to get distracted. Don't lose Jesus in Christianity. So find the glory of Jesus as the most precious thing, as the most preeminent thing, the first place, all important, not ever going to take my fix off of this thing. That's the, first, that's the second application. Trust his word and make his glory the most precious, preeminent reality above everything else there is. Satan wants nothing more for you to get so involved in an argument with somebody over your Bible version and telling them how their Bible version's wrong. You just lose Jesus. Okay? Focus on Jesus and make him the most precious and preeminent thing in your life. And here's the last one. Now, this is, this is so good, all right? I want you to see this in verse 3. Verse 3, it says, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And so there's Jesus. Here's Peter, James, and John. And there's Jesus, and he appears. And all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses appear with Jesus. And these three disciples are watching them have a conversation. It says, and they're talking with him. And so we're all saying, What are they talking about? Jesus is having a talk with Moses and Elijah. I would love to know what that is. And Matthew just leaves us hanging. But the Dr. Luke does not. Thank you, Luke. Um, This is so good. Oh, this is so good. Because, not because of me, but Luke. Listen to this. In Luke 9, starting at verse 30, Luke tells us what they're talking about. And I think this is our our, our third application. Look at this. In Luke 9, 30, it says, And behold... Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. And then watch this 31. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. So Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah of his own departure. With Moses about his departure. That word departure can also be translated exodus. This is starting to get good. Jesus is talking with Moses about his own Exodus, look at this, his own departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, which we know if you look at in verse 51 of that same chapter, when the day drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face like flint, literally, to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not just a city, but a destiny. It's where he's going to go die and be resurrected. It's the gospel itself. And so he's having a gospel conversation with Moses and Elijah. He's having a gospel conversation with Moses and Elijah. And so it it has something, it feels something like this, where he's talking with Moses and he's saying, Moses, I'm going to have a departure in Exodus. Remember when you delivered the people from slavery from Egypt? I'm coming now and I'm going to deliver my people from their slavery to sin. So he's talking about the gospel with Moses. Oh, what it would be like to be there and hear this conversation. He looks at Elijah and he says, remember Elijah, when you went and proclaimed God and in a sense you were a mediator as a prophet between God and man? Well, I 
am God. I'm not going to proclaim God. I'm going to proclaim him, but I am God. And I'm the one and only final sacrifice, the mediator between God and man. So he's just unpacking for them based on who they are, the gospel. That's so good. That's so good. So I know y'all know my application. I'm going to say it anyway, though. The gospel must be talked about, cherished, just a day-to-day part of your conversation. Here it is. They're talking thousands of things they could could talk about, you know. Talks about the gospel. Talking with him, the gospel is so precious. And in this narrative, we get a great glimpse of the amazing nature of the gospel. It's astounding. There are so many connections from the Old Testament to the New Testament. See, there are so many beauties and how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the things in the Old Testament. There are so many things to understand, so many things to know, cherish, be amazed by about how he's the fulfillment and the ultimate gospel bearer. I mean, it's just amazing, all the things. And so I think this is our application. Let us speak often of this gospel. We should talk about it all the time to each other, to people that don't know Jesus. Every chance we get, it should be on our lips. We shouldn't be afraid to try to, oh, I'm going to build up about three or four months till I'm finally going to have the conversation about the gospel. But it doesn't, oh man, like it should be such a sweet part of who we are. We just see the connections in the scriptures and we... We're sitting over the breakfast table with our spouse and you say, let me tell you about the gospel and what I saw in the scriptures today. And you tell your wife, how often do you tell your spouse about the gospel? How much does it freely flow from, flow from your lips to talk about the gospel? How much does it freely, freely flow from your lips to talk about the gospel with your children? Every scenario I can see, every time I'm reading the scripture, I want to let my children and my wife and the church and, and your own life, how often are you pointing to the gospel? Not letting it be some kind of side note tertiary thing that you believe in but hardly ever talk about but that we would talk about the sweetness of the gospel with people the gospel is not just something we have conversations with unbelievers about in order to get them saved it's something that believers need to hear in our day-to-day community groups in life we need to have conversations about the gospel with each other this is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 1-4 looks at believers and says I would remind you brothers of the gospel why? Is he want to get saved? They're already saved. And then he tells them the gospel. This is why in Colossians 1, he says that you don't ever shift from your hope that you have in the gospel. We need to hear the gospel so we don't ever shift from it. In Galatians 3.3, 3, where he says, are you so foolish to start by the Spirit and then try to do works? No, you start with the Spirit, with belief in the gospel. That's how you're saved, justified. And then you continue on in sanctification the exact same way you're, you're saved, by the Holy Spirit trusting in and believing in the gospel. So we need to have the gospel as talked about in all of our life. The three applications, I want you to hear them. I'm going to say them again. Trust the Word's power. And don't be dependent upon experience. What, what is it about the gospel that's not enough that we need experience? The next one. See Jesus' glory as precious and preeminent. Be captivated by the glory of Jesus. And as you behold, you become. And the gospel must be talked about. There shouldn't be moments and days that go by where you're not finding yourself freely talking about the gospel with your spouse, with your children, with your friends, with your family, with your co-workers. With, if you love Christ, 
talk about him. We're going to go into our time of response, and I'm not sure how the Spirit is teaching you right now and what he's showing you and what he's wanting to move you towards. Maybe you need a deeper love of the Word. Maybe you need uh, to love his glory more. Maybe you just need to talk about him more. Maybe this is you've been experienced, verse 6, and you need to think about verse 7. You've always had this such a crazy fear, and when you hear, you're a son or daughter, and you can come boldly into the presence of God, you're just free. That's always what I've wanted. And however the Spirit's leading, I just say, be obedient to that. We're going to go into a time of worship. We've got some room to breathe and think and respond. We've got at least four songs where you can sit, think, pray, and then finally stand and just give glory to God, however the Spirit's wired you. And lastly, if you're not a believer and you hear in a story about Jesus making his face shine like the sun and you, just, you have questions, this is all new, this is new information, I want you to come talk to me after the service. Talk to the person you came with. We want to tell you about this good news that you can be forgiven of all your sin. You can have life everlasting with Jesus. So I'm going to pray and, and Ben's going to lead us in worship and I just pray that you'd be obedient to the Spirit's leading as we go into our time of worship. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. The more sure prophetic word of the scriptures that we have, we thank you for that, that we can meet with you, we can commune with you, we can know you more and more each day. Thank you for the reality and the truth is as we behold the glory of God, we become more and more like Christ. Oh, we want that in our lives. Bring that about, Lord, would you? Be with us now as we worship. I pray for my friends here. Lord, however, Holy Spirit, however you're moving in their hearts, that they would be obedient to your leading. They would confess. They would feel your comfort. They would stand in worship, Lord. They would just be in awe and captivated by the precious preeminence and the glory of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.